you walk down the street and you tell someone vol, they're not going to know what you're talking about. Welcome to Ergs in Equilibrium, a podcast where we discuss recent papers in energy and environmental economics. Ergs in Equilibrium is a joint initiative of the Canadian Association for Energy Economics and the Ivy Energy Policy Management Centre. My name is Brandon Shifley. I'm the director of the Ivy Energy Centre and an associate professor of business, economics and public policy at the Ivy Business School. Today, my guest is David Brown. Dave is an associate professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Alberta, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Energy Economics and Policy. Dave is one of the most prolific researchers on electricity issues in Canada and is currently the chair of the Canadian Association for Energy Economics. Today, Dave and I discuss his new paper, The Value of Electricity Reliability, Evidence from Battery Adoption. This paper is co-authored work with Lucia Mullenbex. Dave, thanks for chatting with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start with some big picture context. This paper is about electricity reliability and the value of lost load, or vol. What do you mean by vol, and what is the economic problem that motivated you to study it? Yeah, for sure, yeah. So, you know, there's been some really high-profile power outages. And more broadly, power outages have been increasing over the last decade. So depending on how you measure it, uh, there, you know, blackouts and power outages have basically doubled from 2000 and to 2010, and then 2011 to 2020. So the frequency and intensity of these blackouts are increasing. And this paper also, actually this paper focuses primarily on the California case where there was blackouts for preventing wildfire induced power outages. So basically we have these big power outages that occurred to try and prevent wildfires in California. And fundamentally at the core of the question we ask is, okay, you have these power outages, they incurred, you know, they had people incurred two days to six days of power outages. What did people do? Like, how did people respond to these intense power outages? And the, the specific technology we look at is the adoption of rooftop solar and battery storage from the residential's perspective. Um, and, and basically what we want to analyze is in response to these really intense power outages, we want to quantify how people change their adoption behavior of this new technology, which provides resiliency during power outages. Um, and that was our fundamental motivation. And, and kind of, you know, maybe not surprisingly, um, people did, right? Like the power outages occurred. I mean, if you have power outages of six days, you're going to remember that. And you're going to say, I'll, I might want to do something to avoid dealing with that in the future. So effectively, what we find is that, yes, in fact, there's a significant increase in battery investment for residential households in areas that people were exposed to these intense power outages. And so, you know, in one sense, it's not all that surprising that, you know, something happens, people respond. But the really nice thing about your paper and the thing that I like a lot is that you can leverage these data and these power outages to pin down a critical value used in grid planning, and that's the volume or the value of lost load. Can you provide a bit of background on what value of lost load or vol is and why it's important? 
Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this is where it gets in the weeds a bit, right? So you, you walk down the street and you tell someone vol, they're not going to know what you're talking about. But, but it is really shockingly important to electricity market design, right? So vol shows up everywhere in electricity regulation and electricity policy. So effectively what vol is, it's, it's kind of a complicated concept, but fundamentally it's what is the willingness to pay for a consumer, say residential, commercial, and industrial, to avoid a power outage. And it's typically quantified, maybe sadly, in a single number. What is your dollars? So say I'm willing to pay $5,000 per megawatt hour of electricity that I lose. So electricity consumption that I'm not able to consume. Um, and that's fundamentally what VOL is, is willingness to pay to avoid power outages. And kind of to spin off your question a little bit, so why do we care? You know, like why is that number so important and so valuable? Well, you know, we face trade-offs, like we're, we're economists, right? There's everything's about trade-offs. So we could build a grid that is incredibly reliable with incredibly low probabilities of power outages. But that's going to be billions and billions and billions of dollars, right? Like we can invest in underground power lines. We can invest in backup generators. We can invest in local storage for natural gas, which could have maybe solved the Texas problem, um, for example. But that costs a lot of money. So I think fundamentally, Vol at its core is very valuable because we got to do a cost-benefit analysis, right? These things cost money. So what are the benefits of reducing the probability of an outage? And fundamentally, you have to know what people are willing to pay and how they value that electricity, right? So, so that's really fundamentally, in my view, the, the, the big, big benefit of Vol. And then there's some supplementary factors that Vol matters for. So in wholesale markets where we procure electricity, we don't allow prices to go to infinity, right? We have this thing called a price cap in wholesale markets, which restricts prices from rising to really, really, really high levels because demand is not very responsive. And, you know, classic economics, prices rise, demand should fall to tame the prices. Well, in electricity, we don't really have that good price responsiveness, right? So, so fundamentally, regulators impose caps to restrict the price spikes. And those caps are fundamentally determined by vol. And if we don't have a good measure for vol, then how the heck do we set those caps accurately, right? So, so that's the second one, which is a little in the weeds. And then the third one, which is pretty darn in the weeds, is if I'm a regulator and I'm trying to make the decision of who do I curtail? Like I am, I'm short on supply. What demand do I shed? Then you have to start to ask the question, if I can target outages in certain regions, I might want to target outages in regions where I believe the customers have lower vol, right? And this gets into equity problems, which is a disaster, right? But, but fundamentally, from a, you know, ignoring equity challenges, you would want to target customers that have a lower value of loss load for power outages and supply constraint conditions. And so I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Why this is such a critical number and you said that it's a single number that captures a lot of features. But we can imagine that, you know, if we're actually thinking about vol, it's likely time varying. It likely varies across geography 
it varies across sector. Now, most estimates of vol are either from engineering studies or from stated preference studies. What you guys do is you guys recover a revealed preference vol. Now, if I correctly understand this, you are among the first people to actually, you know, infer vol from revealed behavior. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So as you said, um, to the best of my knowledge, I don't actually know of anyone else who has a setting in which they can tease out a revealed preference of vol. Um, why is that? Because it's really hard to do so. You know, I mean, um, it's really hard to elicit someone's willingness to pay to avoid power outages. It's just hard to find a setting to do that. And, and you're absolutely right. Like, the frameworks that have been done to estimate vol or engineering estimates or just backing out kind of back of the envelope damages from blackouts or constructing these general equilibrium macro models to try and back out some, you know, parameterized calibrated estimates of vol. Um, and again, those are very valuable. I'm not saying they're not. Um, but they do come with their trade-offs, right? So, so the big benefit that we can exploit is okay. So we have these blackouts. The key benefit of installing solar plus storage is that you can avoid future blackouts partially or fully. Whereas if you install just solar only, you don't have that capability, right? So by investing in this battery, which can be pretty darn expensive, I mean, you're talking $5,000 to $15,000, $20,000 for this system, you can back out or you can, you know, what we try to do is back out what people are willing to pay from, you know, for their observed behavior for this resilient theme reliability value that you don't get with just having solar panels. And so the economic mechanism that we should be thinking about is averting behavior that I want to avert or I want to avoid a blackout. And so that I sh I'm going to invest in a battery to protect me, my household, from that loss of power. Is that correct? Or is there even more to it than that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so in, in a nutshell, that's essentially it. But I guess a, a challenge that we faced, which motivated the methods that we used, i.e. using kind of a structural model to back out, is it's not as simple as that, right? Because fundamentally, people get additional benefits from having these batteries, right? So, while it's true that the benefits, the financial benefits of having the batteries are not that large, and we find that and other studies have found that, because of the retail price structure they face, it's not that economically advantageous to have a battery, to be frank. Um, but then also people just get this you know, warm glow, right? Like I, I think a battery is cool, so I'm going to install a battery because it's pretty darn cool. And you know, I have no use probably for a battery, but it would be cool to have. So so we have to come up with a way to tease out the differences between resiliency, this is the darn cool technology, and the bill benefits um, from this technology. And that's why we develop a structural model that utilizes variation in outage intensity exposure to tease out this resiliency value, right? Because my belief, and, and I think it's a pretty reasonable assumption, is that if you were exposed to more intense outages in the past versus someone who was not, your belief of the resiliency value of batteries is fundamentally different. And we, we kind of hinge on that belief that I believe 
um, to back out this vol estimate in a setting where we have multi-dimensional benefits. And so the comparison we should be thinking of is, yeah, there may be two household, households that have a battery. One household, you know, they bought it for pure consumption value. The other household, well, they bought it for consumption value, but they're also exposed to more blackouts. And it's that differential across those two comparisons that enables you to back out that vol number. That, you know, both households may have bought a battery, but, you know, one is differentially exposed to higher, you know, threats to grid breakdown or blackouts or the other one is differentially exposed to higher threats to resiliency. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, sadly, but thankfully for our perspective, there's a lot of heterogeneity in exposure to blackouts, right? Like these are horrible events, billions of dollars in damages. There's been, you know, deaths attributed to these things. So I don't say it lightly, but yeah, so a fundamentally we utilize the large heterogeneity in the exposure to blackouts to tease out exactly what you said. So why don't you provide some background on your specific setting? Because you guys look at the California situation. Yeah, for sure. So as you know, many people have noticed, you know, if you, if you read news and look at the news, um, California has been facing these incredible challenges with wildfires. So really starting in 2017, you know, dating back before that, but the, the big ones in 2017, there was these, these big wildfires in Northern California, 2018, the famous campfires. And those two years alone, at least 95 deaths were attributed to the wildfires. Those wildfires have since been attributed to power lines. So power lines, basically a tree falls on the power line or vegetation hits the power line and it sparks, hits the grass, which is California's in a drought for, you know, a decade or more. Those power lines trigger wildfires. So California has this, and I'm not a lawyer, but California has this unique legal framework that makes utilities liable regardless of proving negligence or not. So this is called inverse condemnation. And what this basically says is if it's proven, and there's a whole industry of wildfire investigators who try and investigate the causes of wildfires. So if a wildfire has been traced back to electricity infrastructure, which a lot of them have, then the utility is legally liable for the damages, both in loss of life and financial damages. So what, is, what does that do, right? Well, PG&E, so Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the most, has been exposed to the most events, these, these wildfire events, um, for multiple reasons, some natural and some arguably negligent on their part, at least that's what people say. Uh, this induces an incentive to say, we got to do something about this. So what happened was California has this policy called public safety power shutoff events. So fundamentally what this is, is, is a preemptive power outage that de-energizes is the word they use, basically stops flowing power through the power lines to reduce the likelihood of vegetation striking the power lines and causing a power outage. So in 2018, after the large wildfires in 2017, which were, you know, one of the biggest in history in California, these PSPS events were expanded. So the, the California Public Utility Commission said, okay, you know what, we're going to expand the scope of these public safety power shutoff events. 
And what ended up happening because of this inverse condemnation clause, the utilities naturally are going to be inclined to say, you know what, we're getting billions of dollars in economic damages and liabilities. This provides us with a channel and an avenue to reduce our liabilities and reduce the probability of fires. So in 2019, a year after the PSPS scope was broadened by the California Public Utility Commission, we observe a big increase in the PSPS events. So what we utilize is these really big, intense, long-duration PSPS power outage events and 2019 primarily, in October 2019 in particular. So we utilize variation across Northern California and Pacific Gas and Electric Territory to kind of answer these questions. So that's the that's kind of the institutional background we're dealing with. So that's fascinating. I didn't know about this inverse condemnation clause. Like, I know people have a dislike for PG&E. A lot of blame was placed upon PG&E with the view that it was negligence, but I didn't realize they had this strict liability featured to their systems. Uh, that provides some really unique context and you know, really sort of supports the argument on the variation you're using that you know, they're forced to do this. This isn't a probabilistic trade-off. You know, they have strict liability. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and there have been since, you know, these events were very large and damaging and inconvenient to say the least. Uh, some people were on outage for almost seven days, which is incredible. Um, so since this, there has been a lot of legal arguments about this clause and what do we do going forward? And maybe Pacific Gas and Electric used the PSPS events too much, right? Because um, they might have a natural, I'm, I'm not saying they did, but they might have a natural inclination to want to use these power outages to avoid any liability. Um, absolutely. And the, the last thing I would say is what really I think motivated us to look at this question was PG&E CEO at the end of October, I don't know the exact date, there's a really pretty famous popular article that he quotes that these power outages are expected to continue and not be ratcheted down in intensity for up to 10 years. So you're imagine you're a residential customer, you are on outage for seven days, and you're like, the PG&E CEO just openly admitted it might take 10 years for this to stop. So, you know, if our estimates are based upon beliefs about future power outages, then I think this sets a pretty good expectation of the future. So I think that's fascinating. You know, when you say that, did PG&E use this too much to even determine whether what the ballpark of too much means, we need an estimate for vol. You know, what is the value of lost load? And so this is where your guys' work really fits well with that. And so your analysis really you know, has two pieces to it. You start off by looking at battery adoption before you try to infer what vol is precisely. You want to provide some context on, okay, how are these events you know, affecting battery adoption in Northern California? So why don't you tell me about the data? What information do you use and why? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, fundamentally, we need, we need data on solar and solar and storage adoption. And thankfully, California, because it has a lot of solar, um, has an incredible data set collected by the California Public Utility Commission. So every utility has to report all interconnected residential solar and battery storage in, in California. 
So we have this incredible data set that has the date of applied interconnection and the zip code, the capacity, and the details of the system. So we have really good data on adoption. What I think makes our study particularly unique, because a lot of people have used this data set, um, but there is a really good data set on the electricity grid of California. So in fact, as part of this growing solar technology adoption in California, the utility commission required the public utility, or so the investor owned utilities to publish detailed geospatial maps of every distribution feeder in California. It wasn't motivated by this project. It was motivated by a regulatory requirement for rooftop solar adoption. And we just so happened to come across this really incredible data set. So we have every distribution line in Pacific Gas and Electric's network, and we have the exact location of that. The third data set we have is as part of the PSPS review process, they're required to publish the exact feeder that was on outage at the minute it turned off the length of the outage, the customers affected, and the duration of the outage, right? So, so we can connect this de-energized data at the feeder level to the exact feeder that was on outage because we have this geospatial map. So we use GIS, this you know, ArcGIS, to overlay the de-energized data with the grid to then link that to the zip code to say, okay, this zip code had a heck of a lot of outages, whereas another zip code had very few outages, right? And, and to the best of our knowledge, we're unaware of any study that has gone so granular in terms of linking outages to location. So, so that's why I, we were really excited when we found uh, this data, frankly, because we've never seen a data set with such granularity on power outages. And so it's, you know, this mapping of these two data sets that allows you to construct this intensity of outages. And so different households, when they're choosing whether to adopt or not, you know, they're going to face a different intensity of outage. And it's from this local level. Uh, you know, do you want to dig into your construction of that, you know, intensity treatment variable just a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I would say, you know, we have really, really granular data in terms of the intensity of the outages, right? But unfortunately, we don't have household level data on solar and storage adoption. So, so fundamentally, you know, that would be great to have, but I understand why we don't have it. Um, fundamentally, then we have to map from this, you know, foot by foot level data of outages and distribution grid to the zip code level. So that is challenging, though, because these distribution feeders obviously don't care about zip codes, right? You know, they're not built to fit in a zip code. So fundamentally, the challenge we face is a distribution feeder. We know it was on outage. We know the number of customers. We know the duration. But these feeders can cross multiple zip codes. So then fundamentally, we had to ask the question, how do we allocate intensity to a zip code when the intensity is spread across multiple zip codes. So what we use, you know, we use a couple methods, but the, the method in our main specification is, okay, there's a whole literature in the geography literature, which we had to learn, I didn't know about. 
And effectively what it does is it takes the census population, so census tract population data, combines rivers, industrial use, all of these other kind of in land intensity data of where people live, the distribution of populations. So they take these relatively geographically wide, you know, census tracts aren't that wide, but they're not like at the neighborhood level. So these geographically dispersed data, and they use, you know, machine learning and all these complicated geography techniques to interpolate where people live based upon this information. And effectively, in a nutshell, what they do is it spits out a 500 by 500 meter estimate of a population weight all over California, all over North America, in fact, but we focus on PG&E. So, so what we do is we take that really 500 by 500 meter point and smooth it out as like a distribution weight across all of the territory. So what that allows us to do is it basically population weight, the feeder as it crosses through these 500 by 500 meter blocks. You know, the simplest thing we could do is we could say, people are uniformly distributed across the feeder. So we're gonna allocate the intensity of the outage of this feeder based upon the length it covers in the zip code. If we did that though, we'd be assuming a uniform distribution across the feeder. And if you look at the data, the raw feeder data, it would be a horrible assumption because some of these feeders go from a really densely populated portion of Oakland, for example, and then spider out into the foothills, right? Where very few people live. So uniform weighting would be inappropriate. So what we do is we use these 500 by 500 meter estimates of population density to do a population weighted average of these distribution lines through the zip codes to get a more accurate picture of outage intensity at the zip code level. And I know that was complicated, but uh, let me know if you have any questions. No, that was great. I think this is really important. You want to map where people are installing batteries to where the outages are. And because we don't have this perfect one-to-one, we have to sort of be creative and rely on the geography literature and some of the advanced techniques in, in other fields. But let's pivot and talk about your research design. You know, you've done all this work on the data, you've mapped these data sets. What research design do you adopt and why? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as economists, we always beat each other up for identification strategy. Um, you know, I always like to start with the question of if I had all the power in the world, what would I have done? You know, ideally, I would have loved to rent, you know, minus the problems with this, but I would have loved to randomize outages to zip codes, right? And then just seeing what happens. Um, but, but frankly, you can't do that naturally. So what we observe is zip codes that had power outages were admittedly fundamentally different than zip codes that didn't, right? So we have to deal with this problem that the zip codes that faced these outages were just different. So why is that? Well, these power outages were targeted at primarily, say, the foothills of, you know, Oakland or Berkeley or San Francisco, where higher income, higher proportion of white, et cetera, people live. Um, why is that? Because that's where, you know, you have these big homes, more grassland, more open land rather than an urbanly dense place. So we observe heterogeneous characteristics by outage exposure. 
So we got to come up with a way to control for that. You know, fundamentally, the quote-unquote treated zip codes are different than the control zip codes as just a fundamental perspective. So we use a, you know, a classic difference in difference framework, which is saying, okay, you have treated and control counties, or sorry, zip codes. Um, how do we try and control for these arguably time invariant differences, right? There's some fundamental differences in these zip codes. So yeah, so fundamentally, we use an event study, difference in difference framework, that tries to difference out these time invariant characteristics that we're well aware of. But the treatment itself and the intensity of the treatment is not completely exogenous, but it's kind of close, right? Controlling for these baseline differences, you know, these outages, it's just their wind models, their weather models, etc. They use all these weather models to determine which portions of the grid to de-energize. And so, you know, if we think about houses, the housing market changes pretty slowly. You guys are looking at the 2014 to 2020 period. We're not going to see a wholesale change from high income houses to low income houses. Likewise, if a feeder line runs through a forest that has not been sufficiently maintained, it's not like that forest is going away in that period. And so I think you guys make a very compelling case that all of these selection, potential selection effects can be controlled for, and you guys do get a good estimate of the effect of the intensity of outages on battery adoption. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that one other thing that benefits us is I absolutely agree the 2014 to 2020 range, but the DID specification you know, it, it's the variation we're identifying off of is really around 2018 to 2020, right? So the real window that we're getting all of our power from is even shorter than that. So I would say that helps us even more in the points that you've raised. So what do you guys find? You know, what are your results in this first part of the analysis? Yeah, so fundamentally, you know, um, we get this classic event study graph. And, it's, and, and essentially what we find is a couple of months, so three to five months after being exposed to a power outage, we see a significant increase in storage capacity adoption. Why is that interesting? Well, you know, why, sorry, why the three to five month delay, I should say? Well, it just takes time, right? You're exposed to a power outage. You've got to go out and find an installer to give you a quote. They got to come to your house, give you a quote. You fill out all the paperwork and submit it to the utility commission. It's at that point when you submit the paperwork, we, we call you in our data set as adopting solar and storage. Um, but so fundamentally, we see a short delay of a limited effect from zero to two months, which is what you would expect. And then a really big spike from three to five months. And just to give you an example of why this timing makes sense, I actually called a uh, storage invest or storage company in California and had them build a quote. I used a family friend's house um, and it took like a month just to get the quotes, right? Uh, so, so there is this big, relatively big delay. So it really makes sense that we're seeing a three to five month post-exposure event. So let me, let me give you some numbers on some effects here. So we simulate, we asked the question, okay, we use our model to, to estimate the treatment effect of being exposed to an outage. That allows us to answer the following question. What would have happened to the treated zip codes if there were no outages? We find that there's a 45% increase in battery storage adoption 
and treated zip codes in that theoretical counterfactual. So, so that's, a, that's a big effect, right? That's a big percentage change effect. So basically, there's 45% more battery storage than would have existed if there were no power outages. And so that 45%, that teases out the consumption value of batteries. You know, this is just people trying to ensure that they have electricity, you know, because there's this threat from these PSPSs. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, because fundamentally, you know, people in, in, in zip codes that were not affected by these outages and zip codes that were affected by these outages, in our, in our DID methodology, the only difference between those two zip codes is the exposure to outages. That's what we're trying to pick up. So you're absolutely right that this effect is the effect of being exposed to power outages. And so you guys explore some heterogeneity around these results as well. You do it by income, but you also do it by environmental justice. And California has this sort of unique energy environmental justice score. Can you describe what that score actually calculates and then how it interacts with your results and what you guys find? Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's an EJ metric. So it's called the Cal Environmental Screen 3.0 is the version we use. So effectively, what this metric does is it splits California into or it tries to quantify California's environmental justice census tracts. So they use 20 different measures, basically population characteristics of income, ethnicity, a bunch of different measures and a burden, so pollution burden. So basically exposure to ozone, PM 2.5, diesel emissions, you know, drinking water contamination, et cetera. So basically it's trying to take a broad swath of pollution and socioeconomic and demographic factors and boil it down to a single number. Obviously there's trade-offs with doing that, but what it does is it basically tells you, okay, this region of California has higher environmental justice concerns than this region of California. And fundamentally what we find, you know, first starting with income, kind of not surprisingly, these things are really expensive, right? Batteries are really expensive. We find that almost all of the adoption we identify is in the top 50th percentile of the income distribution. And most, most of the adoption is in the top 25th percentile of income. So really, it's these high-income households that is driving these treatment effects. And then on the EJ perspective, we actually find that the, you know, the environmental justice concern correlates with income. So this isn't surprising after observing the income results. We find that the districts with the lowest environmental justice concerns have the biggest adoption of solar plus storage, right? So, so those kind of correlate pretty strongly with each other. Whereas we find the smallest effects in the highest environmental justice concern regions of California. Uh, so this raises the, the growing equity concerns, right? Like, you know, if we, you know, climate change, we're going to be exposed to more intense power outages, more intense burden of just, you know, the consequences of climate change. We have, as you said, from the outset of this conversation, an averting expenditure that allows you to avert the damages of these things. And it tends to just be high income people adopting it. That raises the natural equity concerns. And so if my budget's limited, I may want to avert these damages, but I just can't afford to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and what we're finding supports that. And so you, you find these robust results on adoption. 
From there, you move on and you build this structural model where you're trying to actually back out the vol, this number. Now, it's hard to describe structural models in an audio format, but can you give a high-level level overview of what you guys are trying to do in this part of the paper? Yeah, absolutely, right? So this is the challenge of trying to say, okay, so what are these people doing, right? So if, if I'm a person living in California, I'm weighing these large upfront costs, right? A solar panel, you know, five to $15,000, a battery, five to $15,000. You're talking, you know, 20, 30 grand is a pretty reasonable estimate for this cost. So I'm weighing these large upfront costs with uncertain future benefits, right? Like, okay, I'm going to get some bill reduction in the future. I don't know exactly what that bill reduction is going to be. I'm going to avoid future power outages. I don't know exactly what those power outages are going to be. So we develop a structural model that has been used a lot in economics. We kind of take an off-the-shelf model. We're not making any innovations really in terms of like the solution of a structural model. But effectively, what we're trying to do is develop a model that says, okay, what drives the decision to adopt a technology? I have three choices in the model. I could do nothing. I could just pay my bill and go on and be exposed to these power outages. I could adopt solar. Solar allows me to avoid or it reduces my electricity bill, right? Because I get some revenues from the solar that's generated. But I incur this big cost of investment. I do not avert power outages though. So solar panels alone cannot allow me to avert power outages. The third option in the model is I can adopt solar plus storage. And the key benefit of this is, yes, I get bill reductions. Yes, I have to pay this cost and the additional cost of storage. But the key new wrinkle here is that I avoid future power outages, at least partially or fully. So what we do is we develop a model that tries to ask the question, today, looking forward into the future, do I want to do nothing? Do I want to adopt solar? Do I want to adopt solar plus storage? So we develop a dynamic discrete choice model to answer that question. And so you end up with this estimate of vol. You know, what is that estimate? You know, what's its magnitude? Is it big? Is it small? And how does it compare to some of the engineering or state of preference estimates you've found? Yeah, absolutely. So one, one thing to note about our, our mechanism is we allow heterogeneity in the model, but we allow heterogeneity by income. Because again, our empirical analysis motivates that, right? We find in the empirical analysis that it's really important to differentiate by income. So what we do is we solve this model by income quartile, allowing the vol and all the parameter estimates in the model to vary at the income quartile. And what we find is the, the, the value of lost load varies significantly by the level of income. So in the first quartile of incomes, is the lowest income zip codes, where we observe some adoption, but not a lot, we find a pretty low vol. That's saying basically their willingness to pay is relatively low. It's $3,600 approximately. The, the vol we find monotonically increases as we move up the income quartiles. At the highest income quartile where we have the most adoption, we find a vol of $7,000 per megawatt hour. So, you know, answering your question, you know, what is 3,000? What is 7,000? How do I think about those numbers? I would say that in the literature, the numbers are very broad. So some estimates are $100 per megawatt hour, which I have a hard time believing myself. 
And then some estimates are $70,000 per megawatt hour for residential customers, which I also might have a hard time believing um, because that's a really large number. What I will say is there is a paper that does a meta regression analysis of all vol estimates in the United States. So we view that paper as being probably the best approximation of vol to compare to, right? Because it's a similar framework, similar jurisdictions. So they find vol ranging from $1,400 to $6,500. So below our estimates, but shockingly not too far below our estimates, right? So, so our vol numbers aren't crazy different from the vol numbers in the literature, but I'll caveat that with, I argue that I think our estimates for multiple reasons are conservative. I actually view ours as kind of a lower bound on the value of loss. And we, we can dig into that a little bit, but the, the last thing I would say to answer your question of how do we interpret these numbers? So 3000 to $7,000. Well, remember back our, at the beginning of our conversation, these price caps, right? The price caps in the wholesale market, what do they use for their vol estimates and how do our numbers compare to theirs, right? So Alberta, um, where I live, their price cap is $1,000 per megawatt hour. You know, if you build in the fact that ours is looking at residential and commercial and industrial vol, I believe is higher, $1,000 is really low, right? Compared to our estimates. But if you look at Texas, or Australia, it's like $9,000 or $13,000. To me, once you build in the fact that our numbers, I believe, are conservative and they don't account for commercial and industrial customers, you might start to get into the better range there of $9,000, $13,000. So I think in Ontario, it's $10,000. But I want to come back to sort of two points that you raised. The first one is, you know, in the lower income quartiles, you get a vol about $3,600 and then it increases until you hit you know, 7,000, roughly in the, the upper income quartile. We can imagine sort of some of the economic challenges that arise with this ability to self-insure. You know, the first one that jumps to my mind is credit constraints, the inability to finance this. Uh, I think this really opens up a series of questions. You know, if people do want to self-insure, what are the barriers to them self-insuring in this format? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this is something we fear with this paper. You know, one thing we fear with this paper is someone you know, I talked about demand curtailment decisions, right? If I'm a regulator and, you know, I'm not saying regulators are going to do this, but frankly, you could say this is a lower income region. They have a lower vol. Let's just turn them off first, you know? And I think that's not the right thing to do. Absolutely not. So I think it's important to caveat our numbers with exactly what you said, right? So what our numbers are doing is trying to elicit the willingness to pay to avoid power outages from battery adoption. I believe our numbers build in all of those problems you said, right? Credit constraints, proportion of renters, although we try to deal with that, which we can talk about, you know, all of these other challenges, these barriers, these lower income households face to adopting these technologies. So we think that our estimates are kind of a first blush at this question, but I think it raises as any arguably good research question does, more questions than it answers, right? So what is the true vol if you built in these constraints, these financial constraints and everything? You know, Is it that these lower income households are truly willing to pay less? 
or are they unable to pay more? You know, so I think that's a really interesting follow-up question to what we do here. Um, so that's why I think it's really important to understand what we do, understand our numbers, but then understand the limitations of these numbers. So you've already touched on a number of policy implications, especially with respect to the equity implications of trying to infer too much from vol. You know, what are some of the other policy implications of you know getting this revealed preference estimate? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think I view this as, you know, surprisingly, some of the estimates in the literature are not that far off from what we find, right? So so I think, you know, I'm not saying that they're accurate estimates, but it is reassuring that these estimates that drive fundamental pieces of electricity market design may not be that terribly far off from reality, right? So I think that's a little reassuring to me, even though I think their estimates in the literature are on the lower bounds um, and our estimates are conservative for some structural reasons in the model. So I think, you know, from a vol perspective, they're just useful insight, right? It's just a useful insight to see if you use a revealed preference approach, what would you get? And these are the numbers that we would get, right? So I think from that perspective, that's a valuable policy insight. But from the battery adoption and resiliency perspective, right? So I view this as kind of raising concerns is that, and I have a corresponding paper that does just kind of a correlation analysis of adoption in California and reinforces these findings that basically it really does seem like it's really high income, low proportion of people of color districts that are adopting these technologies. So to me, that raises the question of what do we do about this and what, how do we reduce these barriers to these other communities who are experiencing these power outages, but don't have the ability to avert them by investing in these technologies. And this is not, I'm not the first person to think of this. California is taking this seriously. So California, you know, thankfully for our purposes after our study period, they instituted a new subsidy policy for batteries. And they're targeting lower income zip, or sorry, lower income census tracts that experience PSPS events. So there are policies out there. And I argue in another paper, it's not quite doing as good of a job as maybe we would have hoped. But there are other policies out there that are targeting these lower income communities to reduce the barriers to this technology. And just to give you a scale, the subsidies are really big. So the subsidies under this program can pay for almost 100% of the batteries if you qualify. So by qualifying, you have to have a medical condition that you could be in life, you know, life endangered by power outages or certain low-income characteristics. Uh, so yeah, so I, I think the equity concerns and the vol estimate are really the key policy implications of our, our analysis. So that's fascinating. You know, one of the big picture issues we're dealing with when we talk about energy transition, you know, not just in the electricity sector, but across sectors is, well, how do we manage the equity implications of that? High income households, they can adopt new technologies. They can fail if we do something wrong and be okay. The same story can't be told for at-risk populations or at-risk jurisdictions. And I, I find that absolutely fascinating. What's next? for research into vol and battery adoption. You've already touched on a number of ideas and a number of, a little bit of the research frontier. Is there anything we've missed? You know, any particular ideas you think are, are critical here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, 
Oh, yeah, there's so many. Um, you know, some of, I have to guard my ideas. No, I'm kidding. But um, yeah, so I would say the vol we estimate is a single number, which is useful from like a simplistic perspective. But as you said at the beginning of our conversation, vol is really complicated, right? Like, is it really, does a single number do it justice? And I don't think it does. Even though I think, you know, having a single number is valuable because that's what people use. It's the intensity of the power outage, the duration of the power outage. Does the power outage happen in the middle of the day? Does the power outage happen at night? Are we talking residential customers? Are we talking commercial and industrial customers, right? So, so there's so many other features of the value of lost load that need to be investigated. And, and our hope is, is that we can use our setting to try and start to ask those questions, right? So extend our analysis to ask these questions of, does, is there a little more nuanced characteristics evolved by these other features? And thankfully we do have some characteristics of these outages. We can elicit some of the answers to those questions. Another thing I would add to that is one reason why I view our estimates as being a conservative underestimate of vol is because we don't model diesel generators. And if you look in the news, you'll see all over the place that, hey, you know, these outages happened and a bunch of people went out and bought diesel generators. A diesel generator is a heck of a lot cheaper than investing in solar plus storage, but it's also environmentally damaging, right? So, so another question we're pursuing is, you know, getting the data for it is challenging, but frankly, what impact did this have on diesel generator adoption? I think is a really important question in California. And this is in Texas too, right? So Texas had these power outages and you see news articles that Home Depot was sold out of generators within 30 minutes, you know? So, and diesel generators are incredibly dirty technology. So I think this is another really important follow-up question. My guest today has been David Brown. David, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Ergs and Equilibrium podcast. For more information, you can visit ergsandequilibrium.ca. For any questions or comments, you can email bshifley at ivy.ca. That's B-S-C-H-A-U-F-E-L-E at ivy.ca. Have a great day.